I notice you have a lot of recurring guests on your show from time to time, and you open the show by asking them a hypothetical question. Okay, yeah, it's very true. Do you like hypothetical questions? I do like hypothetical questions. Well, here we go. I got one for you. Oh, boy. Let's say your evil twin mm -hmm. from an alternate reality has captured and kidnapped Donovan Morgan Grant, mm -hmm. Jasper Tony, and the irredeemable <laughs> shag. Oh. And Anne has placed each of them in separate death traps. Okay. What do you do first? Now, wait a minute. To be fair... If this is too personal, I do have an alternate hypothetical question. <laughs> no, it's got it's got. So if you want to go, huh? There, it's got to be personal. There has to be stakes with these. Okay, good. These I either are. So you mean who do I whom do I rescue first? Well, I to be fair, I asked what would you do first, but okay. I think that kind of goes hand in hand with who do you rescue first. But I'll leave it open to you. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is certainly a tough one. <laughs> it's kind of like kiss, marry, kill almost that game. <laughs> uh, <laughs> See, so I have that standby question if you want it. So no, no, I gotta, I gotta think through this, right? And this is good because no one challenges me. I'm always uh, the the person who challenges. So, okay, I've known Josh and Don longer than Shag, so there is some uh, loyalty there. Though you know, I've become close to Shag in recent months, but I'm, I think that loyalty has to. Has to win out to a certain extent. So I'm afraid Shag's probably not going to be the person I'm going to rescue. So now it goes down to a really tough question because it's, you know, is it Josh or is it Don? And I think Don's been on my show more often than Josh has. However, I feel like I've spent more time with Josh in real life, maybe, than I have with Don. So this is tough, you know. Do I value... Face-to-face -face interactions over <laughs> podcasting. What good you've done? So I'm sorry. Inviting you in, onto the show. Hmm. Aww. This is, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Now, wouldn't you think one would understand, you know. If, More if, than the other? Right. You know, the, you're, you're in a fix. So I think yeah. one would, you know, I think both of them would probably understand. That understand you, what I'm doing, yeah. Understand what you're doing and your actions. And yeah. Whatnot, so. I think I may, I may save Josh just because... Don, he's physical like I am. He's done boxing and, and things like that. Uh, and he's into anime, so maybe he knows some martial arts too. Who knows? So I feel like he'd be able <laughs> to figure <laughs> a way out of this death trap. So I'm going to go with uh, Josh. Gotcha. Now, see here, the, the easy question I was going to ask you was if you could have free unlimited service mm -hmm. for five years from an extremely good cook, a chauffeur, <laughs> or a masseuse, which mm -hmm. would you choose? Probably a cook. Uh -huh. I think okay. so. Yeah, uh -huh. that'd be nice to try different things. Excellent. Yeah. So that was an easy one. It, it <laughs> takes out all the personal, personal stakes for sure. There you go. Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes: debutantes, nurses, stenographers. And librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaking. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition. No, boy wonder, I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusaders. <laughs> 
It took me three years to track down the Jade Gato, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. Sawete, I'm your host, Stella, and this is Macro the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 115 for March MMXVI. Macro the Oracle is brought to you by King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun. Hi, I'm Kyle Benning, and I love comics. In fact, I love them so much that I ramble on about them on a number of podcasts, all on one feed, found under the King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun banner. I talk about comics with extra page counts like Treasury Comics, Prestige Format Books, DC's Dollar Comics, Marvel's Giant Size Specials and King Size Daniels, and much, much more. I also love to talk about DC's Christ on Multiple Earth crossovers, free comics from Special Promos, Free Comic Book Day, Star Wars, My Life as a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles fan, random comic book back issues, and many other elements of geek culture that happen to strike my fancy. There's new content usually dropping at least once a week, and it's all found on one feed. You can subscribe via iTunes. Just search for King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun in the iTunes Store or podcast app on your iPhone. Otherwise, you can follow the podcast at the King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun blog headquarters, available at www.kingsizecomics.giantsizefun.blogspot.com. That's all one word, King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun.blogspot.com. Or follow on Facebook by simply searching for King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun. So for snappy review and discussions on comics, new and old, usually done from the front seat of my car or my lunch break at work, check out King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun. Backroll the Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. But hey, if you're not into the vintage stock, that's okay, because Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. Examples of the prices you may encounter are May's Batgirl 52 and Gotham Academy 18, both for $2.69. So if you're looking for back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out MileHighComics.com. Batgirl the Oracle is a proud member of the Batman Universe family of podcasts. Hashtag TBU family. Well, I am now, in the course of 2016, dedicated to raising the average IQ level of this podcast. So I have invited yet another intelligent co-host. Previous month, we had Professor Allen. And this time, I mean, you should almost have, I think, Professor title with your name. We have our, our special Batman 6 reviewer, Chris Carnes. 
Thank you. Wow. And I have to tell you, Stella, the past podcasts, I've just been in awe of all the guests you've had. <laughs> and, and they've just been really, really good. I've, I've, liked, I've liked Professor Allen and Ryan with the bad, uh, Black Canary, excuse me. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just been uh, opening a lot of doors with podcasts and, and things that uh, each one has been unique and brought something to the table. So I hope I live up to uh, the caliber of the recent guests. Do you think you'll live up to Shag? <sighs> Shag is in a class by himself. What can I say? <laughs> I just I, I, I know it's dying that he's he's not here right now and, and doing this. But uh, Shag, trust me, I, I, I don't know if I'm worthy, but I will do my best. Oh, I'm sure his ego just got larger listening to that. <laughs> Well, we're living in a pretty crazy time, and besides, you know, talking to you about Batman 66, I really haven't spoken to you much about sort of the the current uh, feeling and aura of pop culture around us because there's so many TV shows out now and also movies. So what is it like now to, to live in this time and be a fan of the comics for you? I'm so taken aback by, instead of being the... Uh sort of at work known as the de facto guy who's into comics, that there are more people at work into comics than ever before. And I, I can have uh, conversations with coworkers, not just about comics themselves, but it seems like every night there's a show on TV with, with, with a comic a theme or comic base that I, I can discuss with someone. And going into the comic store, I'm seeing uh, more multi-generational folks going in. I'm seeing more women than before going into yeah. comic shop. I see more girls going into comic shops. Mm-hmm. Not just people making their own uh, fan films, people doing their own fiction, people in the class play. There's just so much out there. And I, I just never before have been in this time. And I, I've always been sort of like, you know, growing up the uh, closeted comic book collector slash geek, but now it's, I can let, let it fly. And uh, I feel so, feel so glad about that. What, what, what's your take on it from like, say the past 10 years to now, are, are you seeing any different trends? Uh, I am seeing uh, different trends, especially just that it's more accepted now. Before it was like a quirky corner, you know, a little sect that you belong to. And I think to a certain extent, there is a negative connotation with being a comic book reader. But now it is so widely accepted, which I think is wonderful. I don't go to comic stores as much just because I do use um, a mail order service. So I haven't really seen a change in that way because I remember the last free comic book day that I went like this one particular person kept asking over and over again if I needed help and I wondered in my mind if it was because I was a girl so the assumption was I didn't know what was going on but uh, I do wonder you know how much that has changed because I still remember the time I went to a local comic convention and one of the vendors tried to trick me and and uh confess that Flash and, and Wonder Woman were Marvel and I was like, Oh, I think you mean DC. And so, you know, he tried to, so I, I'm I'm hoping that yeah, now that everything is opened, I think, for everybody, that there is more accepting of all classes and, and type of people as well. But personally, yeah, and I think at school I would say also that um, more people are excited and they'll come up to me because they sort of know me as the comic guru and they'll talk to me about it and it's less of a, while well, you're a nerd Ms. Teacher. So, um, yeah, I, I like this. I like this particular period in time and you're absolutely right that every day of the week practically uh, there's a show on and some are better than others. Uh, my number one certainly that I'm really loving right now is Supergirl. I just think it's fantastic. But the bottom of the pile is certainly Gotham for me. <laughs> I haven't even seen the first two episodes of the the mid-season premiere, I guess. So that can show how much excitement I'm 
Oh, holding for it. What do you have any favorite shows now? Well, like like you, I enjoy Supergirl a lot, and I was going to go by the numbers to see if you we followed that. I just heard it did get picked up for a second season. Yeah. I'm very excited about that. I'm looking forward to uh, seeing Melissa Benoist at C2E2 in a couple of weeks. Ooh, okay. Yeah, so I'm really looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to the Flash crossover. And I can't believe they're actually going to get get away with that. Uh, I know that, it's just uh, unbelievable. But like you, yeah, Gotham. What happened there? <laughs> it just, uh, it just it sort of went off the rails. And I, yeah, I, yeah. Um, I don't know how many times Jim's Gordon can get knocked unconscious, and it's almost like a drinking game when somebody invades uh, uh, the police headquarters without yeah. any, with ease. Um, well, how about uh, the other shows? Um, do you watch The Flash? I do. Yeah, loving that. Uh, I think Arrow, I still pick that. My ranking is sort of Supergirl, Arrow, Flash. But yeah, I love all of them. Uh, DC Legends of Tomorrow, I'm warming to it. I don't think it, it doesn't have the same feeling, spirit, as Arrow and Flash do for me for whatever reason. Yeah, uh, how about Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.? Does that do anything for you? Yes, and it's better. The first season was a little rocky for me. I used to do other things while watching it, so that can sort of give you a sense. And I thought season two was great. But, pet, you know, Agent Carter, I think, I love that. Um, and yeah. I'm sort of bummed that that's teetering and it may not be picked up for season three because I think that's an awesome show. Oh, I totally agree. Yeah, and I love the sets and the mm-hmm. uh, costuming. Yeah. Uh, just I love the period stuff. It's mm-hmm. really, really great. Refresh my memory. Did you finish Jessica Jones on Netflix? I did. I did. I burned through that pretty quickly. That was, (laughs) I wasn't expect, well, maybe I should say I was expecting it, but I had read over the summer the Alias series, which I thought was super dark and I wasn't expecting that. So I was prepared when watching this show, but it certainly has gone to a very dark corner with that. But I thought it was wonderful, tremendous um, actors, I, the Purple Man, so evil. I think they really captured everything about that particular character, and I'm glad that they didn't stray away from the dark things that had happened to her and and her I don't her sort of damaged personality. I I think it's great. I can't agree more. I thought David Tennant was excellent. Mm-hmm. I hope he gets recognized for his performance in some capacity. Mm-hmm. I thought this was just maybe the best portrayal live. To- depiction to portrayal of a Marvel Comics villain that we've seen to date in film or TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, this this was outstanding. I had some reservations about Kristen Ritter initially. I almost thought she looked too pretty to be mm, Jessica yeah. Jones. But after, uh, it took me maybe by the third episode, I really warmed up to her in performance. Mm-hmm. I thought it was just outstanding. Yeah. Yeah, you're right because, I have you read Alias? Oh, yes. I read okay. it initially when it came out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because she's not like portrayed very attractively you're right about that uh and i remember kristen ritter the first time i saw her was on gilmore girl season seven she's uh (laughs) she's a roommate of rory gilmore and so i was thinking to myself how can this girl uh you know be jessica jones but then she was also in breaking bad which i had recently watched last year and so that was a different side of her as well but yeah that was that was well done yeah speaking of breaking bad uh not comics related (laughs) but i really love better call Saul. great show I don't watch that. I would highly recommend it. Okay, good yeah. to know. I just finished Mad Men, so that was sort of my latest um, little Netflix binge. And now I'm actually, for the first time, watching Clone Wars. Ooh. Yeah, so getting into the Star Wars feels. Well, moving from television, we're also in this crazy season of superhero movies. So what do you think about what's on the slate? Have you seen Deadpool? I saw Deadpool, okay. and I, I just think they hit it out of the park. 
<laughs> now, obviously, here here's the question. I mean, uh-huh. this this is an R-rated movie. Uh, oh, yeah. could, it, could it have worked as a PG film? And I think no, it could not, yeah. based on the character depiction. Mm-hmm. That said, I just had a blast. The, from the opening credits to the uh, closing post-credit scene, which with the, with the Ferris Bueller takeoff, yeah. I thought from start to finish, excellent. Ryan Reynolds just nailed it. I just can't see anybody else... Uh, as Deadpool. I really, really absolutely enjoyed it. Whatever films uh, are coming out, they've got some uh, tough act ahead of them, I think. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I really appreciate Ryan Reynolds being so dedicated to the character because from day one, I think he really was pushing for this movie. And I think he was with the fans that he didn't really appreciate how his his character turned out in X-Men Origins Wolverine. So so I'm glad that he, he stuck with it and, and, you know, something wonderful finally came out of it. I think I agree with you that it really couldn't turn into a PG-13 without really diluting the character. And it really was nonstop. I mean, from the beginning with the fake credits, <laughs> you know, the annoying British guy or, yeah, whoever it is. And, yeah, it was just wonderful. Some of the stuff I, I, I was a little squeamish at, you know, because there are certain... There's like a certain level I can take, but I thought the the humor was was spot on. My favorite part, for whatever reason, was his little baby hand when he's stroking blind out and saying, is it me or is your hand really tiny? I don't know why, but that cracked me up. That was, oh yeah, all the humor was good. Just the little asides and everything, uh, the the breaking down the fourth wall, loved it. Yeah, my one problem though, as an X-Men fan and someone... (laughs) who really likes Colossus, especially because I ha- I've been reading Kitty Pride's journey, is I was super annoyed that Colossus never went out of his metal form. And the fact that he was walking around the mansion in that, which is something that Piotr didn't really do. I mean, he would have been a human. And also, if he had been metal and gotten in the taxi, that taxi would have been scraping the asphalt because he's so much heavier. So I just, I called party foul with that. You totally brought up something I did not even consider, and okay. you're absolutely right. Wow, I did not even think of that, and spot on. Yeah, you nailed it. That's a great, great uh, comment and critique. Uh, so next up is Batman vs Superman. Any thoughts on this? I have some reservations about mm-hmm. this film. Um, you know, it's ironically the last time we talked, I, I came on an episode. It was almost three years ago, and the Man of Steel had just come out, and I. I didn't care for it, I think, as much as you did. I had some problems with the uh, violence and the Superman uh, kill scene at the towards the end of the film and all the destruction with no regard to human life. And just the pedestrians, uh, the common citizens walking around just didn't seem to be take things in wonder and stride. I mean, this was a Superman to be afraid of. I'm, I'm almost more looking forward to... Uh, uh, Captain America Civil War, mm-hmm. to be truthful. I, I saw the new trailer that just came out. Uh, what are your thoughts about both films? Come yeah, on. well, definitely I am most looking forward to Civil War, just because I loved Captain America 2 so much, and I think he's my favorite Marvel hero that they have in the cinematic universe right now. I'm also very scared that they're going to kill him off. <laughs> so mm-hmm. Just because, and I don't think Sharon will be the one to do it. That would be very strange, um, which is what happened in the comics. But I'm just afraid that's how it's going to end. As for Batman versus Superman, it's funny because I just talked about this with um, Michael Bailey on an upcoming show for him. I'm disappointed 
if only because I actually really liked uh, Man of Steel, and I know that sort of the Superman community was divided on this, but I was really looking forward to, you know, Man of Steel 2. So focusing on the Superman character, I was looking forward to villains we haven't seen. I really want Metallo in a movie. I think that would be awesome. But instead, he's got to share screen time with Batman. And I feel like Batman has had his time in the sign. You know, he's had his, his film from... Batman to Batman and Robin, and then he had the Christopher Nolan film. So I just wanted to develop almost my generation's Superman, so I'm bummed about that. And it just seems like there's so many characters being thrown in there that just seems too much. Uh, Wonder Woman seems like she may be somewhat developed, but then we hear of Aquaman, and he's not even appeared. And I don't know how they're going to shoehorn him in. But I, I am concerned. Acting-wise, I, I don't really... I don't have a problem with you know Ben Affleck being picked or anything like that. I'm one of those people that's just wait and see, and I think he's... he. While there are some bad films like Gigi, I, I, you, know, you have to also think about the writers and things like that and he's done great films too so i feel like you can't really judge him on just a couple films but i'm just disappointed that's got to be batman and superman i kind of just wanted to be one person but still i had a thought just trying to think about this and trying to narrow this down a little bit and i don't know if when i see a marvel comics movie trailer if there's something subliminal in them or not, because after I see a trailer for a Marvel movie of late, I am pumped to see it. But when I see one from Warner Brothers or for DC Property, I'm just not hyped. Uh, <laughs> do you do you do you, do you, do you have? Does the trailer seem to hit you hard with both uh, the recent uh, Marvel trailers and the recent uh, DC trailers? Do they have um, the both same weight? I don't think so. It depends on... I actually find myself really heavily analyzing. So, for example, we had the Civil War one just dropped today. The new one. Have you seen it? Yes, I have. Okay. So, I was super pumped until Spider-Man popped up. And then I was overly critical of it. Not only because I disagree... Well, I'm still bitter. There are, like, multiple reasons. I'm still bitter about the Andrew Garfield Garfield thing. I still want him to be Spider-Man. And the whole reboot, I don't like it. Uh, number two, the character looks CGI, which bothered me to no end. And uh, the third one is just thinking about what Civil War was originally. Iron Man's side was always, you know, pro-registration. And for Spider-Man to be on that side, one can only jump to the conclusion that he's already registered and his identity is known before his movies have even come out. But that doesn't make sense. So I do hit the sort of heavy critical mode but i think that i do i guess i get pumped i think i would be with you get pumped more for the marvel though suicide squad actually the more trailers that come out for that i'm actually really excited for that but i guess i am intrigued with it yes yeah but maybe it's just the batman versus superman that you know the first trailer really revealed nothing and then as more trailers come out we get more and more concerned, especially with like the Doomsday. I was more like, why is Doomsday here? And then the fact that Doomsday is created from Zod, which is a very weird twist. So maybe it's just that movie in particular. Because, well, what about X-Men Apocalypse? Are you excited about that one? I am excited about okay. that one. One thing I'm, I'm a little about the fence about, uh, did you see the Ghostbusters trailer? I did. Were you a big Ghostbusters fan back in the day? No. I enjoyed no? the movies, but wasn't like a huge, huge fan. Okay. But I assume you were. Uh, so tell me about your reaction to this trailer. I wouldn't put myself in a category when I say I think I'm a quote-unquote fan. There's okay. somebody who just takes it to the next level, and I go, oh, wait a minute. I default to you. You're the fan. I 
think it looks pretty good. I was I, I had very lukewarm feelings when I heard it was going to be redone with with the cast, but I knew these were all talented comedians, and I I, I, I I was familiar with their work. And I saw the trailer, and I didn't think, oh, it's not going to be maybe that bad. So I I, I my needle went from. Uh, Negative to cautiously optimistic. Mm -hmm. So we'll see what happens. And I'm somewhat judgmental on remakes, honestly. Fair enough, yeah. I I don't know. If there's something... I mean, clearly, if the first is not good and the second one does better, then I think, you know, that's fine. But I also have a problem with them remaking films that feel like they have just come out. I know that she's... It's not She's All That, is it? Yeah, She's All That, which was a 90s film. They're going to remake that. And I'm thinking to myself, that is my high school year and you are making it when I'm like barely an adult. So I don't know. I, I think that's foolish. But we'll see. I think I have to rewatch the first... I remember there being a scene. I don't know if this was Ghostbusters 1 or 2 where Sigourney Weaver or... Yes. Oh, okay. Is it a bathtub and like this goop comes out? Uh, yeah, very good. Is that Recall one or there. two? <laughs> That's, I just remember that. But um, yeah, I'll have to rewatch. I think the the first ones before I go and see this new one. If I if I do. Here's a question for you, Stella. Mm-hmm. Are you reading any Marvel titles? And I bring that up because, and I don't know if this is the proper form for it being on a bad girl show, but uh-huh. thinking about it, Marvel's got all these titles with. Mm-hmm. Women. There's mm-hmm. Hellcat. There's Squirrel Girl. There's All New Wolverine. There's Thor. There's Spider Woman. There's Spider Gwen. Mm-hmm. And there's Silk. I mean, I, I that to me, I think is is this unprecedented for for so many titles being out there with with the female lead? Yeah, it seems like it. And I think that this was something that Marvel has always it seems pushed for and succeeded more in compared with DC because I think DC is always struggling. And Marvel seems to be able to do these titles and do all female led. Like they have that Avengers title that's that's all females or A Force. That's what it's called. You know, compared to you know, Birds of Prey is done. Right, they're going to start another one, but that that doesn't last very long. And I can't really think of a female team right now in DC. You can, if you can think of one, you can. I let certainly me know. can't. No. Yeah. Not at um, all. But absolutely, I and I go back and forth in my comics reading. Sometimes I'm reading lots of DC, and sometimes I'm reading not as much Marvel, and then it'll flip. And the past few years, I've been reading more Marvel. I read Captain Marvel because I love uh, Carol. Ms. Marvel. I do read All New Wolverine and Spider Woman, which may be my favorite book. That's like a the, each of those issues. Dennis Hopeless is knocking those out of the park. I love it, along with with the art and everything. And See, and here I had no idea, and I love that title too. Oh, and I think yes. that's one of my favorites. It's and awesome. I presume you read the previous incarnation before the uh, renumbering. I did. Yeah. Yeah. What, and though I, I loved each and all of those, it, it seemed like it had the. Um, just the feel to it with uh, all those old villains and, and just the situations. And it was perfect match between writer and artist. I, yeah. I totally love that title. I thought it was very underrated. Still is. Yeah. And it feels like when She-Hulk was coming out, it felt very much like that. Uh, and I was bummed when that got canceled. So I'm glad that uh, Spider-Woman is still going. And I do read Hellcat, uh, which has a very uh, back row of Burnside feel to it. But, Doesn't I, don't, it though? Yeah. but I don't read uh, Squirrel Girl. Now, you mentioned, you know, when you were talking about that, you mentioned Rebirth over DC. Do you have any big thoughts on this? Now, I know there's going to be a Batgirl, and I think Batgirl and Birds of Prey, and I think we've got Gotham Academy next semester. Mm-hmm. What worries me a little bit, though, is just uh, I, I've become attached to the uh, creative teams on both respective titles. 
Gotham Academy and Batgirl, I'd hate to see that shaken up, but I, I fear it will be. Uh, what do you think on that? Yeah, I think it is going to be just because it's been announced that the Batgirl team has an image book that they're going to be doing or helming. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like they, if they're doing an image book that they may not be doing a Batgirl book, especially because Brennan Fletcher, if he's still doing Gotham Academy, already seems like he's pulled in many directions. Especially if they continue on with Black Canary, though, I don't see that happening. So Batgirl makes me a little concerned just because I, I want the spirit of it to continue because I think that they really got it right post Gail Simone era. The Birds of Prey worries me because, well, it was announced that Helena is going to be on the team and you don't really know what incarnation of this Helena is going to be uh, because it can't really be the spiral Helena. But I wonder if it's going to be the one that when the New 52 nearly began, uh, she had her own series and she, you found out it was Earth 2 Helena and she was working with Power Girl. So I wonder if it's her which, you know, it would just be an interesting dynamic, but you also wonder how are you going to fit that character in when they really haven't gotten to know each other. So that just worries me, like, how the team members are going to work together. And they were almost building one a couple issues ago with uh, Harper and Steph. So, I mean, they had the makings of it, but if they decide to, to leave those go, then I wonder why. And I'm also wondering if get my bet is that Gil Simone is actually going to write Batgirl and the Birds of Prey. And the, and I put that out on the Batman Universe uh, recent comic podcast as well. So uh, we, we shall see. We shall, we shall see. see. And uh, we'll get to one of your predictions later on in the uh, podcast. But uh, yeah, that's Sometimes right. Sometimes they work. Yeah. Sometimes they work. One other questions I was going to ask you too, mm-hmm. um, speaking, I think we've covered a lot of bases with TV and film. What about plays? What was the last play you saw? And do you, um, are you going to see any plays coming down the road this summer? Good, good memory that I go to New York City usually every summer. And I always go with the son of a friend of mine. And this is his last year in college. So it's probably our last little trip to New York City, which is a bit of a bummer. We want to go see Hamilton. But it is sold out. It's pretty much as bad as Wicked was, where you could barely get a ticket for, you know, less than $1,000. So, yeah, it sold out. We were going to go in May, and I'm, you know, looking ahead. And uh, cheapest tickets are $471. So that's probably a no-go for Hamilton. So we're considering our options. There's a new musical, or I guess a revival, called She Loves Me. And it's actually the Meg Ryan, Tom Hanks film, You've Got Mail, is based on a version of She Loves Me. So I'm thinking about that or Something Rotten, which was an original, and I've heard good things about it and that it's funny. So those are the two I'm considering. The last play I saw was actually uh, this young man uh, was in Cyrano de Bergerac in college, so we always take a trip up and watch his plays. Uh, and he was Cyrano de Bergerac. So that was the last play. Oh, but then my school actually put on The Music Man, so I guess that was the last one for, for amateur amateur plays. But yeah. Uh, I I enjoy Broadway. I love New York. I know that people say I love it, you know, to visit or I I hate it to visit. I love it to visit. And if I would have unlimited budget, I would love to live there as well. But I don't have an unlimited budget, so I won't be able to live there. But I, I just think it's so diverse and rich in culture. And I love traveling to Midtown Comics. I usually go there every time I'm up. So that's always great. Excellent. I have one last question for you. Okay. And I think this might be something the listeners would be really interested in. I'm in the unique position to probe your brain a little bit. Mm-hmm. Do you have a guilty pleasure, be it a song, a mm-hmm. TV show, or a movie? Do you have like a, a go-to guilty pleasure? 
I guess Game of Thrones may be my <laughs> guilty pleasure because, you know, sometimes I do feel guilty about it. You know, how, how much it's talked about, you know, the sex and the violence in there. I think it's a good show and I think that it has, honestly, its merits and really deep ideas and themes and, and discussions about right and wrong and how these are affecting the characters and how the characters affect other people. And I love how characters change so much. Uh, I hated Jamie Lannister and I like him now in the show, but I liked him more in the book, especially because uh, have, do you watch Game of Thrones? I do watch. Okay. Yes. Have you read the books? I have not. Okay. Uh, and I was told this could be something of an intimidating read, but once you get past a certain point, <laughs> you, you, you can just, you're, you're good to go and you dive right in. So yeah, yeah. I will say that once you get past the prologue of the, cause it's, it's the prologue that is like so heavy and you're wondering if you're going to make it through. But once you get past the prologues, basically you, you zoom, you zoom right through it. But in, in the book, it delves more into Brienne and Jamie's relationship as they're traveling, you know, and, He's her captive. And just to see how that character changes is just astounding. And one of my favorite characters is uh, Davis, the uh, the Onion Knight. And I love him because he's so unchanging and unwavering. And I think he's sort of the one, quote unquote, good character just because he has high moral standards and he's very loyal to Stannis and all of this. But there are also really creepy factors like Melisander <laughs> and that shadow baby. Baby and the red wedding the first time I saw that like almost made me physically <laughs> I couldn't <laughs> believe it that that's just astounding so it does go places that you really you need to be fortified I think but but overall I think it's, it's a very entertaining show and and I think it's deep and thoughtful which is one of the reasons why I love it the writing's good. The acting Absolutely. is excellent. Uh, I think everyone who is very well cast, even from uh, top to bottom. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I like even when uh, Diana Rigg is on there with uh, as uh, Alana yep. Terrell. Just she just has just superb delivery and with with her lines and uh, just the one liners and the little asides. You could just catch a little bit of uh, snark and witticisms, but it's just, just outstanding. Mm -hmm. uh, great cast. Uh, Maisie Williams is Aria. I mean, how many people have named their kids either Maisie or Aria based on this? It's just, <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's such a great show. It's just such a great show. I absolutely agree. And it's funny because I named my Kindle Nymeria, which was Aria's, her dire wolf that mm -hmm. is lost. I feel like she's not gone forever, but who knows? And um, I thought that if I get uh, like a husky or some sort of wolf-like dog that I would name it Nymeria or like Stark or something like that. <laughs> so not going the direction of actual names, but I think it would be awesome to – or ghost, you know, if it was an all-white one. I'll certainly do that. But yeah, absolutely. Well, shall we get into the main event? Let's do it. Okay. Uh, so, folks, of course, we're going to do more than just have fun and talk about pop culture. We're going to do some reviews. And this is nice, too, because Chris has agreed to be on the full show with me. So I have a partner in crime for both the vintage and the modern issues. And we're going to talk about Nightwing, which was a four-issue limited series. And then later on, we're going to talk about Batman Chronicles number one. And unfortunately or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, Babs doesn't really appear too much. So we're not going to dive too deep into these things, but I think there are some good points that we can bring up for discussion, both surrounding the stories as well as Barbara Gordon's appearance. So let's start out with Nightwing. 
So I guess that was a four-issue limited series. And it ran from cover date of September 95 to December 95, written by Dennis O'Neill, and it had Greg Land as artist. So Dick briefly considers retiring from being Nightwing forever before some family papers uncovered by Alfred reveal a possible link between the murder of the Flying Graysons and the Crown Prince of Cravia. So he ends up journeying to Cravia, and Nightwing actually gets a new costume, and it's his third costume, in fact. And he helps to topple the murders Cravian leader and prevent an ethnic cleansing while learning his parents' true connection to the prince. And basically, Oracle appears to give him some information uh, as she is going to be doing throughout. Now, what's interesting about this particular appearance of Oracle is that I felt like it seemed very distant between them, uh, especially his narration. Doesn't even explore what she is to him. He just calls her Oracle. Doesn't say, you know, Barbara Gordon, she used to be Batgirl. We used to be friends. There is, you know, romance between us, uh, which I thought was very strange writing. Do you have any thoughts on how she was introduced and, and what her appearance was like? It was almost they were like uh, total strangers with just merely a passing acquaintance at Absolutely. best. Uh, I, I did get that vibe totally. Yes, I totally agree. Covering some bases here, this was written by Denny O'Neill. Mm-hmm. This was uh, also the issue in question number two was cover dated October 1995. And from some historical context, uh, around the same time, if you were on the bookshelf, uh, comic book store, you could see Action Comics number 714. Uh, the Joker went to Metropolis and there was a toy line based on the Clown Prince of Crime. So he was going to check that out. Over in Batman 523, Batman had to stop the Scarecrow. Okay, historical stuff aside, I just felt this whole series was somewhat contrived and to what degree did this feel contrived suddenly after all these years alfred produces these documents related to dick's parents mm-hmm. and no one has bothered to read or examine them up until now what, what was going on there I, I i just thought that was really shocking yeah and and especially just because it adds or it changes slightly the backstory of the graysons and i think it makes it a, a little more convoluted really than it needed to be uh, do you think this is to like spice up the origin was this you know a time that hey we're in the 90s Let's see if we can change Nightwing's past a little bit. Initially, I thought so. But once once we got going and entrenched in this, uh, we sort of had this identical twin and this seemingly contrived bit with this Kravia. And I'm wondering how hard up the Kaylee Circus was to go to this place to start with. And I'm trying to wonder if uh, Denny O'Neill was trying to make some kind of... Uh, political allusion to something going along with some uh, small countries of people at the time trying to be relevant. And I just couldn't recall anything that that was just really bizarre because once the series ended, we were sort of back where we started from. There was, when the story began, we had this uh, Miggy Webster character being introduced. Mm -hmm. And then at the end uh, we thought this was going to be, well, when it started, we thought this was going to be some sort of uh, romance, budding romance happening. But by the end, it's not there. Uh, When the story happened, we thought uh, here's this origin is going to tie into some of these uh, people in Kravia and that, And it wasn't Basuko all along that did this, but then once the story ended, yeah, it was really Basuko. So Mm -hmm. Dick, Dick did this adventure and I read the letter columns in the back of this, and I gave—I guess they gave some advanced copies to some uh, letter hacks around then. And I—I I get the vibe that everybody around this time was uh, begging DC to put on a, a Nightwing miniseries mm-hmm. or something to test out a Nightwing book to see if the sales were good and maybe this would be an ongoing title. And I think this was—this really came off as contrived. But I think when I read these letters and saw the people who read the advanced copy of Number One and the subsequent issues. 
they just absolutely loved it. I mean, they ate it up, and I thought, wow, what did they read? I, I just couldn't see what was going on here. What did you think of the tweak and change to Nightwing's costume here? I like it, though for some reason he's able to grow a mutant braid or something. Uh, it's, yeah, what's, it's, what's that all about? <laughs> it's so long. Uh, and this is his classic costume, really, uh, which I, I really miss post-Flashpoint because it's, it's been red now, changed to red. Uh, but this is always, when I think of Nightwing, this is what I think of. Yeah, his long hair certainly reminds me of Venom's extra-long tongue. When drawn by... Oh, Tom McFarlane? Yes, thank you. Sure. Tom McFarlane, yes. That's absolutely who I was thinking about. So I like it. Uh, I certainly buy everything that you just said. Uh, And it's interesting, in the back of uh, issue number two, which is the issue that Barbara Gordon appeared in, I, I neglected to say that, but there is one person, is it... I guess it's the first letter that sort of brings into question the continuity. And in the, in the middle column, Charles Skaggs is his name. He says, one thing that does trouble me, though, are the dates surrounding the murder of Dick's parents. Okay, the Haley Circus was in Cravio, which is presumably located somewhere in Europe, from June 11th to the 25th, and then was in Gotham City on June 27th, the night of the murders. Would someone please tell me how an entire circus can just up and split to America with all the equipment, personnel, and animals, and be all set up and ready to perform in just two days? Not to mention the illogical skipping over cities such as London, Dublin, and New York during what I gather was a world tour. I'm sorry, I don't buy that one. Well done, sir. Yes, that's pretty true but i think uh i i think it's probably to try to you know let's get nightwing into a mini series or a limited series and test the waters and and this may have been a precursor to his ongoing which is going to happen soon and to see how fans would receive it and i guess the way to do that is always to talk about their origin story one thing i can't let go is uh what, what did you think of dick's fashion sense in this issue because uh in this one page he's he's got this white shirt on with like these purple, blue, and green dots all over it, and and, and he's got he's sporting this mullet, and I thought, what what were people it's doing in crazy. the '90s? I, I oh yeah. my god, goodness, it was just uh, the fashion sense was just so all over the place here, and we have this assassin running around in this loud jacket and pants, and I, I'm thinking. What was going on there with the clothes? Oh, well, you my can't goodness. take the uh, the circus out of the boy, apparently. So apparently not. <laughs> there it is, for sure. One other thing I did want to comment on. What did you think of the artwork in this? Overall, I liked it. I think it's <laughs> I think it's pretty clearly 90s and, and more etching, I guess, or lines than I think we're used to now, really. And and Dick really has a lot of arm hair, more, more so than <laughs> I'm used to from him, just because... Bruce always just seems to be the hairy one. But I was very thankful for the fan service, and I think it was issue one where you see him after a night out, and, and he's just laying in his uh, in his bed, in his underwear. He's very muscular. <laughs> yeah, with yes. all his, yes. Very, yeah. You, I, I wondered if you'd go there. You did. Oh, absolutely. You, you, you and uh, I, I guess I'll about. channel Shag and say he's, he's so hot. A fan letter had said later on, I don't know if it was this issue or issue three, you know, thanks for that. And then the editor said, you're welcome. <laughs> so it's pretty, pretty interesting. Something that I really liked, though, about the series is the relationship between Dick and Bruce, uh, which really bookends this particular story because it happens in issue one and issue four. And I think it's good to talk about it 
especially now because Prodigal, the events of Prodigal had just really wrapped up and, and you see that, you know, Dick wasn't exactly comfortable in that and he's trying to find his place again. So what did you think about uh, his relationship with Bruce as Pink? I think you totally nailed it because the, the, the opening and the scenes with Batman were just totally uh, very good. You could see where Dick has started from and what he's become and you grasped the understanding of of what Bruce did as a parent and how he raised him and how Dick questioned it. And then he became at the end of the story, he came more accepting of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he, he got to see kind of the other side of the fence with Miggy's family in this. Mm-hmm. I just thought it was great. And I thought if there's any, you know, high mark of this miniseries, it was certainly that moment. Uh, and I think what with, the way things we've seen in the current state of uh, relationship with Batman and Bruce and Dick in the comics now is really missing something that was right, right in that little kernel in this miniseries. So I just thought that was really, really good. Yeah. And I think they have an emotional moment where these two don't necessarily get into their feelings as often as uh, Bruce may get in uh, with other people. And I think that's great. And, And it's also great that Dick at the end, you know, has decided to stop living in the past and really be in the future and then look towards or be in the present and start looking towards the future. So I think it ends uh, on a high note. Mm -hmm. I did have one more comment about the art going back to it. Mm -hmm. This was Greg Land who did the artwork and Mm -hmm. Greg Land can kind of be polarizing out there to uh, comic fandom. He's criticized for tracing and he's been known to use some shots that are not quite family friendly. Now that said, when I'm putting this out there saying Greg Land did the artwork on this, don't don't think of it as his current style. I have to think this was early in his mainstream career. And the art here looks nothing like his recent style or art that you'd see in, say, uh, Ultimate Fantastic Four back in the day. Mm. Uh, that said, we've got some interesting panels of Miggy. Now, you mentioned Dick before, but there's one panel where Miggy's standing sideways with her wrists tied behind her back, and that looks <laughs> kind of questionable and then there's another panel a couple pages later where she's unconscious and her lips are parted and i'm thinking what's going on there just the way Mm -hmm. the way she's looking and it makes me wonder if land was um lifting that from somewhere because Mm -hmm. it's sort of kind of the pre-stages of what he would evolve to i think uh artistically Mm -hmm. uh so if you were to rate this whole limited series what would you give it out of 10 bats or out of 10 long braids out of ten long braids, I am going to go. I got to go six and a half. I just thought this whole story was contrived, mm-hmm. but but the strong parts were what we mentioned with uh, the relationship with Batman. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But uh, I just think when the story ended, we were we kind of were where we started from. I really wanted to like this more, and I think this did satisfy the need for the fans back in the day. But mm-hmm. looking back on it, I don't know if it aged well. Mm-hmm. We, we've got these clothes and these styles that just <laughs> look totally um, out of place today. Yeah. So that's that's where I'm going to go. How about you? Yeah, I'm going to agree with you and give it a 6.5. <laughs> it was interesting, uh, but I was just waiting and waiting for his backstory to be changed. And then when it reverted back to normal, I thought, okay, but what was the point of the whole journey then? Mm-hmm. And it seemed like it was almost trying to keep pace with the Batman origin because originally his origin was very simplistic, right? Joe Chill shot his parents and that was it. But then it started to get more complicated, you know, when it 
you know, Joe Chill was actually hired by somebody else, and then there's more to it, which I actually like sort of the conspiracy behind it. So I felt like maybe Nightwing or the creators, well, I guess, or the writers here were trying to make it a little more intriguing, but you do wonder about that. And and I'm just disappointed in Oracle's appearance just in the fact that there's, like, it just seemed very cold. Like, the first time these people are interacting or he's just using her as an information broker, which he is, but, you know, they know each other. They've had so many adventures together in the 70s that it was just a bit of a bummer. I agree. Yeah. I do. I did forget to mention that Alfred is back, and this was a question I had because he's been gone since, I guess, the middle of the, the Nightfall trilogy, and he actually comes back in Nightwing, Alfred's return. Uh, Nightwing actually goes over there to London where he is and a bunch of stuff happens, but Alfred returns. So he is back now in case anyone was wondering why he's back. If you read this. Okay. That was a one shot, correct? The uh, Alfred returns. It was. Yep. Yes. Okay. I just read it today. In fact, cause I wanted to read it before I had talked about it, but it's just very strange. If you, if you don't catch one thing, you sort of wonder, you know, where did this happen? And then you have to go and find that in order to keep up. And, and in the, you know, in the grand scheme of things where it pertains to Barbara, it doesn't really matter. But for me and my sense, and, you know, trying to follow along with these stories, because I feel like in the nineties, I'm really going to be reading chronologically and I need to keep up with everything that I need to go back and, and pay its due. So there you go. Very smart. Well, next up, it's your turn now. Next Batman up, okay. Yeah. Batman Chronicles, here we go. Batman Chronicles number one was cover dated summer 1995, but the Indochia Inside lists the date as July 1995. Now, in size, this book was as close to thick as the DC Comics annual of the day, and it was cover priced only at $2.95. From some historical context, also on the comic racks around this time cover dated, uh, we had Dawn number one from Sirius Comics, Topps Comics gave us Lady Rawhide number one. Marvel Comics Amazing Spider-Man number 403 had the trial of Peter Parker with Carnage as a prosecutor and Kane as the defense attorney. <laughs> Sounds like a bad trial. <laughs> yeah, I forgot about that story, so I'm going to have to go reread that. Now, over in DC Comics, Aquaman Volume 3 number 10 had, had the Kyle Rayner Green Lantern team up with Aquaman. Coincidentally, Batman number 520 was out, which Stella and Professor Allen examined in the last podcast. Yeah, and finally, Impulse number four, in which Impulse took out a villainess named White Lightning. And this title contained the very first letter column, and the very first letter printed was from yours truly, some guy named Chris Carnes. Oh, wow. Wow, how about that? Okay, uh, Did Batman Chronicles. a letter at the end? Uh, I don't have it handy. Okay. <laughs> well, You're we, like we, Shaq now. You and Shaq are similar because I remember reviewing a comic and his letter, his first letter popped. Up. This is funny. Uh, it was around that time. I think I was between jobs, and I just decided to um, write a bunch of letters. And we can get into that later on after the reviews about my little brief uh, foray into letter writing. I, I was certainly uh, no TM Maple by any means, but I, I think all, all in all, I had 23 letters printed in various comics right around this uh, period. Yeah. Let's see, Batman Chronicles number one had a few ads related to the Batman Forever movie and related trading cards. The movie came out in 1995 on June 16th. Uh, this issue contained three stories, one with the character Anarchy, which was written by Alan Grant, and it was entitled Tomorrow Belongs to Us. Another story written by Doug Mensch, and it had no dialogue at all, and it was entitled Death Mask. Mm -hmm. And I'll be recapping the first story in the book entitled Midnight Train, Written by Chuck Dixon, pencils by Lee Weeks, and the very noticeable inks of Bill Sienkiewicz, 
who both also did the cover art. Here's the story. An introspective Jim Gordon is among several passengers on a midnight train. But this one is not bound for Georgia. He's leaving. Leaving. On that midnight train to Georgia. but rather the east end of the Rayford section of Gotham where Gordon lives in the earlier suburbs. Jim Gordon recalls that Sarah got on him for not taking the car home, but to him, taking the subway reminds Jim that Gotham is people. A gang calling themselves the Transit Authority, that's trans with a Z hyphen it, authority has been hijacking trains for the past six months. Six months! I guess Batman has been busy or he has not made this a priority. Yeah. Okay, and sure enough, they strike, they strike Jim's train, and the gang is wearing hockey masks, uh, and they have matching jackets, and they board each car. The rear car is momentarily in darkness as the train switches tracks, and one of the three gunmen is suddenly taken out. When the lights come back on, we see that the Huntress is now in the car, and she throws batarangs at a second gunman. The third gunman fires, but Gordon acts quickly, and he slams his head into a pole. Meanwhile, in the Batmobile, Batman hears reports of the hi- a train hijacking. Back on the train, the Huntress wonders if Jim is a cop, and Gordon tells her he used to be one, and he soon forms a plan. They work their way forward, car by car, with Huntress on top of the train and Jim using the door. Now, as, as this is happening, Jim is making some internal assess- assessments of the Huntress. On the one hand, he is noting her speed and fighting skills, but on the other, he wonders if he can put the trust into someone else wearing a mask. When they get to the final car, Jim has a bad feeling before they make their way. Gunmen sent someone on the roof and opened fire with Huntress barely dodging the bullets. Huntress manages to swing through a window, and Gordon, with a seized gun, shoots back at the gunman. The battle rages on, and Jim suddenly thinks of Barbara, that he never told her he found her mask and her cape, among other things. Suddenly, the Huntress is hit in the midsection, and she falls backwards. This image has a profound resonance with Jim as he envisions Barbara falling back after she got shot, her glasses falling from her face, and her dropping her mug. Now, with the Huntress fallen at his feet, an enraged Jim Gordon opens fire at the remaining gunman, vowing to himself that he won't let Huntress die on him. The siege is soon then over, and the Huntress sits up, showing that she had Kevlar on to take the brunt of the shot. But she says she'll have a tummy ache for a few weeks. As she starts to leave, Gordon is unsure of the right parting words and can only manage, I'm just glad you're all right, before she goes. A weary Gordon leaves the train, and he's met by Batman, who asks him if the Huntress was of much help. Jim says all the wrong people would have been dead if she hadn't been there, and notes that Batman had never never mentioned her, suspecting that Batman would not approve of her. Batman agrees and further states the reason why. Gordon's not the only one that the Huntress reminds of Barbara. With that, Batman swings off, and Jim calls Barbara on the payphone. We see Barbara asleep in bed and her answering machine getting a call. Jim says, Sorry to call you so late. I just wanted to tell you. And there's a long pause. I hate these machines. I'll call you in the morning. Jim Gordon's original thoughts then returned. Something about Gotham that he missed writing the back of the limo, Gotham is people, people he loves, and the end. Okay, so my, so my thoughts and comments on this. Um, taking a step back, Gotham, uh, excuse me, Batman Chronicles ran for 23 issues in the mid-90s. And, you know, I'm glad you brought this up because I think this title had some nice stories back in the day and this one was no different. Mm-hmm. Uh, Batman Chronicles may be to the 1990s version of the Batman family titles of the 70s, but maybe with more depictions of the bad cast and we have more stories. I really like that Jim is no longer commissioner, but we still get that worn down, beaten uh, Jim Gordon who's always ready to act as a Gotham season cop. I really liked his uh, sensitivity and heart that he showed in this issue. I will second your... Uh 
the Chronicles being like the Bat Family, I think with the exception of Chronicles really seems like, and this is the first issue I've read. Well, I guess I read Batman Chronicles number five out of order. But it's very street level. Like you're getting to know less Batman, but more the people that are around Batman, which I really like, at least in this particular issue. This is a very powerful issue, but it's only powerful if you know the back history, like what has been going on recently in Jim Gordon's life. The fact that he is not a cop anymore, but having to act like a cop in this particular story and on the train, I think is really powerful because he just, you know, stepped down, obviously as commissioner, and then in a fit of rage, he also put his badge on the table since his wife (laughs) that they're struggling with, he's having issues there. And then the other thing is that He's having to trust a mask, right, when he's been having trust issues with Batman. And that's one of the reasons why he was forced to step down as commissioner. So it's really deep and many levels. But without knowing sort of the backstory and what's been going on in Jim Gordon's life, I feel like you could potentially miss why this is such an important story. Yeah, there's little asides we have here, too. We learned that Jim Gordon lives in the the Rayford section of Gotham City, and I've totally forgotten this, and I wondered how many times Rayford was actually mentioned uh, in Gotham City. So I thought that was interesting. The quibble I had with this, though, was the villains, the Transit Authority gang themselves. Uh, Mm -hmm. Here they are being at large for six months, and neither Batman or the Gotham City police have been able to stop them. And here are all these gang members wearing the words transit authority and these red letters on the back of their black jackets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm thinking, you know, wouldn't this make them more so identifiable and incriminating yeah. and in conveying this? And I don't want to give off the wrong impression. These, these are not really what you would think of typical Batman costume themed villains mm-hmm. with the way they are depicted. This is just simply a gang. And I think there was just nothing unique about them. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think you could change the six months and maybe it would be maybe six weeks would be more understandable, but yeah, first when I saw them in the A, I wondered if they were like a part of an anarchy game or something, gang or something, but no dice there. Yeah, I'm not really sure. It reminds me of something I've seen on uh, Batman Beyond uh, where there were, well, I guess the Jokers that used to come on train yes. and rob people randomly, but these seem like they've got it together. It's a very large gang, too, to not catch any of them. I don't know what Batman's doing. One thing that stood out for me here, too, was that uh, Bill Sienkiewicz's inks on this. Uh, I can see how someone might say they were a bit thick. Mm. When I think of Bill Sienkiewicz, I primarily think of him as a Marvel artist and remember him mostly for the work he did over on Moon Knight and the uh, Electra Assassin miniseries in the 1980s. But, you know, I looked it up, and not long after this, he'd team up with Jim Aparo to do the Batman GCPD miniseries. So there you go. So mm-hmm. he did did a bit of foray in DC back then. Yeah, and Lee Weeks is no stranger to Marvel either. Yeah, good point. What did you think of how the Huntress was drawn? Did you think her costume was a little bit too revealing and drawn a bit accentuated? (laughs) Oh, aren't they always? I don't know. This isn't the costume I'm used to, but I guess this is sort of the 90s-esque costume. But oh, yeah, yeah, you bet. You bet. It it certainly got the Power Girl flair for it, for sure. Yeah, and I'm trying. you bring up the 90s, and I'm wondering just if, if, if I'm thinking weren't they all kind of bit depicted that same way yeah. right in that right in that time frame mm-hmm. a little bit uh, overdone shall we say mm-hmm. yeah that's all i had really my thoughts on it okay, uh, yeah. i just really appreciate you bringing up batman chronicles again because i, I think that's a whole treasure trove of good stories that Absolutely. might have been forgotten or lost uh yeah certainly with with today's uh comic fandom going on i guess before we leave what do you think about the comparison between helena and barbara did you think that was a stretch or did you see it and also this was a, a bit of a big reveal the fact that post-crisis gordon knows that 
Babs was Batgirl. Uh, it was established pre-crisis, but then you don't really know how much had changed after the crisis, and so then we find out that, hey, he did That's an excellent point and, a, and an excellent question. I, I certainly think it was that image of her falling backward that struck Jim in that way. Mm-hmm. While we see that Huntress is formidable, I, I don't think she was personally, to my taste, in the caliber as Batgirl is, is an effective heroine. That's just my bias, I think. Mm-hmm. I Yeah, I I'm, don't get me wrong, Huntress is very formidable, but I, I think Batgirl is uh, well above that in, in yeah. stature and uh, quality and skills. Yeah, I feel like maybe it's just because she's a vigilante and she happens to be a girl. Yeah. So that's what I'm thinking, but... But yeah, I mean, it was still, it was good to see a phone call, I guess, between Jim and Ben, you know, to think that he would think of her and and then call her right away. I I kind of like that. But yeah, there wasn't really much to talk about on Babs, per se. Fair enough. Should we rate this story or is it unfair to? Well, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, As far as the story goes, no, I I give that a solid 7 out of 10 Babs. Or 7 out of 10 train cars. I thought this was, this was, (laughs) this was, this was all right. The villains were very weak, but the... The, seeing Jim's sensitivity and heart depicted uh, wore me over, and I think that's that's the feeling here I have with this. So, mm-hmm. a, a very good Jim Gordon story. If if we only get to see uh, Babs sleeping in bed, but I'll, I'll I'll take what I got out of that for yeah, a nice seven out of ten. How about you? I think I'll raise you a little bit and give it a seven point five out of ten, uh, okay. just because I really liked what was going on with with Jim, and I guess I just felt like it was a really big and impactful story given the current circumstances and the way his life is right now, which seems a little hectic for him, but yeah. Way to go. Well, I do have some listener emails. Mail time! Mail time! Mail time! Mail here! Here's the mail, it never fails, it makes me want to wag my tail, when it comes I want to wail. They're actually all comments on the previous episode, episode 114 with Professor Allen, so I'll go through these. First up from Donovan Morgan Grant, he says, Regarding Bruce and Selena's relationship that produced Helena being presumed as a Dalians, not true. They were married. They both were killed, though. Now, I do take this offensively, Donovan Morgan Grant, because I didn't presume anything. I just said, I wonder if there was something important about it, or was it Italians? So I didn't presume anything. But if you could give me more information about it, you know then well i guess being married is enough do you know anything about this uh, earth 2 relationship between selena and bruce there was a very key story and i'm wondering if donovan's referring to a couple of things at play here an excellent story happened in the brave and bold number 197 mm. where we really got to see how that relationship with bruce and selena evolved and from something which was on the surface very adversarial to something very deep the scarecrow is involved in that and with the within the confines of the story a lot of emotions were brought to the surface uh we really got to see some meat and some heart really behind these stories or rather the back history of these two characters so in fact yeah i would almost save that for a literature recommendation if, if you can find uh oh. Brave and Bold number 197 mm-hmm. track that down that's okay. an excellent story it's got an awesome cover too by uh, jim aparo you, we've got in the uh background a menacing scarecrow if memory serves and then in the foreground, I think we've got Jim DeParo drew the cover. We've got Bruce and uh, the Golden Age Catwoman looking at each other eye to eye, and there's we see them you know side by side looking at each other, but the capes are drawn in such a way that they form sort of like uh, a heart. 
So it's like a little Valentine. So it's really, really well done. I'm also wondering too, Donovan might be referencing some other past stories. We didn't get to see too much in um, Adventure Comics, which had the JSA stories. We didn't see too much in All-Star Comics, but the relationship was certainly alluded to back then. Also, I think the Golden Age Batman and Catwoman got married in, of all places, an issue of Superman Family Mm -hmm. with the Golden Age Superman Clark Kent uh, and Lois Lane, who were already married, in attendance at the wedding. So, yeah, the relationship ex- was explored, and it's uh, sort of here and there, but it certainly was touched upon, but it was really nailed in that uh, one issue of Brave and Bold. Gotcha. Next up from Ian Clark, he says, in reference to your Arrow Rabbit Trail, you mentioned that Felicity was becoming that world's oracle. In the episode when Oliver gives Felicity her codename Overwatch, he actually says he would have called her Oracle, but that name was already taken. So yeah, I mean, with the calculator and everything that happened and her being sort of the de facto information broker, they're almost so close to her being Oracle, but they've stayed away from it. Now, I assume you're caught up on Arrow, is that correct? Yes. Okay. Do you think it was a little unfair that they've decided to make her paralysis go away? I'm really torn. I can see I can see both sides of the argument on this. I, I think if anything, the recovery just happened way too quickly, and I don't know for what reason it was even bothered to have been added with the paralysis to start with. If it was mm-hmm. going to be just uh, cured uh, like that, mm-hmm. I love the character of Felicity Smoke, but. Well, I just have no idea what they were thinking, and this was a head-scratcher moment for me With as far as the writers, who have generally done a great job with the depiction of Felicity, especially in the most recent issue, uh, issue most recent episode, where uh, she just uh, decided to call off the engagement, mm-hmm. the reasons why. I thought that was very powerful stuff, mm-hmm. and um, I wonder where it goes from here. Absolutely, yeah. I just wonder if it was a bit of a cop-out. I felt like maybe there was something to be said and, and for it to be bold to have someone who was handicapped on the show. Because I feel like we don't really have that uh, sort of representation as much in media. And I thought that this could be a great uh, avenue. But So I'm a bit bummed about it, but I wonder how other people feel. I think I think that's more than fair, and I think a lot of people echo your opinion and sentiments. I, I think it was almost expected that, that, that the fans wanted this and they, they were going to get it, yet yeah. uh, this was suddenly taken away. I did think the uh, – what did you think of when Arrow said a few episodes back, uh, what, what do you think of the court name Oracle? And he says, well, that's already taken. I mean, yeah. Did you just kind of kind of uh, have – did that strike you, that little aside to that uh, moment? Yeah. thought that was a little tease or – I think it's a little tease. I don't know how much, you know, they'll play off of that. And, and I don't know if the TNT Titan show is going to be in the same universe as this. But certainly they could potentially – open up some avenues. But wouldn't that be fun? Yeah, if she rolled it or did something. (laughs) That'd be great. Next up from Ian Miller. I think Babs' bike was held up by Steph and Harper's enthusiasm. Well, perhaps. I just didn't understand how it was flying, but I guess, you know, technology. Steph not knowing people's identity was one way the writers just kept treating her unfairly. First with Tim, then with Matches Malone, both with pretty tragic consequences for poor Steph. Hopefully... 
Barbara sharing more information with her and hopefully continuing Echo's training from Catwoman is an indication that Steph won't be dealt such a dirty hand this time around. I'm assuming that since Steph was staying in Luke's apartment, Babs intentionally let her know her identity. I disagree with that last statement only because when Steph... I could be misremembering this, but I would believe when Steph asked about like whose apartment this was, Bab said like it was a friend, which is very vague. So I don't even think she knows it's Luke Fox's apartment. But if you remember, Chris, I had a problem with, or I wondered when Barbara revealed her identity to Steph. Yeah, right. This and I, I'm not sure myself, and I just okay. don't know if that happened somewhere in the current Eternal series. That happened somewhere in the panel, and I don't know if they all convened there, but I didn't think uh, Barbara was there for that, so I'm not sure. Not sure, but uh, certainly, Ian, you know, if if they're willing to share it and overwrite, I guess, what what had happened in previous incarnations with with Stephanie, then that's fine. I just do want some sort of explanation rather rather than for it to come out of left field. And finally, from Clinton Robison. Move over, Shag. Stella's got a new and more refined guest host. Professor Allen did an amazing job on the podcast. I was pleased to hear his take on some Babs-related stuff and laughed at the jokes relating to his own podcast. A wonderful job by all. You're here. Great, great stuff. I'm sure they'll send in comments regarding your podcast as well. Well, your appearance anyways. Uh Uh-oh. Hey, man, look out. <laughs> Good or bad, who knows? Well, that's it for listener comments. Remember, you can always post comments on the BatmanUniverse.net in whatever episode you so desire. I usually get a ping back or an email, or you can email me directly at BatgirlTheOracle at gmail.com. Well, we are going to take a break, and then when we come back, we're going to review Batgirl 48 and Gotham Academy number 15. But first is Zias' Radio Hour featuring... Yes. <laughs> There's no I in team by taking you back Sunday. Best friends means we're best friends 
Okay. Well, we are back. Hope we enjoyed that a little heavier music than than normal. Here we are, and now we've got first up, Batgirl forty eight. Batgirl forty eight is cover dated April twenty sixteen. Our story is entitled Old Friends and is written by Cameron Stewart and Brendan Fletcher. Art by Babs Tarr with breakdowns by Rob Haynes, Serge LaPointe, and Lee Lawfridge, who also did the colors. Babs Tarr did the cover art. And which, to those who have this, may recall it's a very striking cover, depicting Batgirl leaping over Black Canary's left as she's belting out a canary cry, and this is against an orange background. This is one gorgeous cover, and it's one of my favorites of the year so far. For a quick recap, now remember in Batgirl 47, Greg crashed at the apartment and went through her drawers. We also had the introduction of a character called Corporal Punishment, and Stella's score for that particular book last issue was 8 out of 10 bats. Oh, here we go. Okay. Our story opens Our story opens on a celebratory note on a starry night with Batgirl and Batwing having a picnic on a rooftop of an old firehouse building that Barbara Gordon just signed a year lease on for her energy company. Batgirl seems to have some internal doubts that what she went through with this deal, but it was worth it to her, as she says, and I quote, and it was so worth it to see you in your Batwing suit. Total swoon. Scandalous. Ooh. Uh, now, mind you, this is complete with little Valentines drawn swirling about their heads. And folks, we're only on the third panel of the first page. Let this sink in if you're a hardcore Babs and Dick Shipper, and relish it if you are a Babs and Luke Shipper. Here we go. Okay, Luke agreed to put on the costume upon completion of the deal, but says the costume will go back in storage. The moment of intimacy is interrupted when Frankie contacts Batgirl and tells her that there's a robbery in progress at the Super Arcadium. Our heroes literally swing into action on the splash page and then arrive to find the video game themed villainous pair calling themselves Player One and Player Two, collectively known as Co-op, who previously appeared in a preview Batgirl story that was available online on DCComics.com and was still there last I checked. The pair are able to create images with hard light holography and they put our heroes in different costumes and in a wrestling ring complete with an imposing wrestler who is quickly dispatched by Batwing. The heroes split up. Batwing takes out one of the players who has the control module, and Batgirl takes out the player with the projector. Game over. Difficulty level easy. The villain's motive was revenge. However, Batgirl relays to Batwing and Frankie that she has no memory of this previous encounter. Now, later at Foxtech, Frankie runs a diagnostic on Barbara's neural implant, and she discovers that it's been tampered with, or hacked. The ladies then return to the apartment, and to a scene similar to the last issue. Greg is again caught in the act of going through Barbara's personal things. Only this time, it's not Barbara's underwear drawer, and it's Dinah who catches him. Greg explains his company is developing software, and while not its intended use, could be used to help Barbara reconstruct her memories of the last few months. Greg takes Barbara and Dinah to his office, and Barbara inquires about her whereabouts on a specific night. Greg informs her that she was at Luke's address all night, but she has no recall of it. Upon leaving, Dinah senses that she and Barbara are being followed. However, the trio following them turn out to be Black Canary groupies and autograph seekers. Barbara later calls Luke, and he informs her that she wasn't there in the night in question. Barbara then calls Frankie, and is informed that she was actually at the Burnside Hall of Records. Barbara suddenly winces, and she has a vision of the figure from her nightmares, and Dinah insists that they go there. Shortly upon arrival, with both of them in their respective costumes, Becco recalls a letter to the basement. Once there, 
Beckerl heads towards the computer, only to be demanded to stop by the figure from Barbara's Nightmare, now calling himself the Fugue. Time out for a vocabulary recap. Mm -hmm. Webster tells us that Fugue is defined as, one, a piece of music in which tunes are repeated in complex patterns, or, two, a disturbed state of consciousness in which the one affected seems to perform acts in full awareness, but upon recovery cannot recall the acts performed. Now imagine that state if you're at work or if you're a politician. Okay, that girl is shocked seeing that her, quote, nightmare figure is actually real. And Fugue seemingly knows Barbara's and Batgirl's memories, but he is hit by Black Canary before he can reveal that Bruce, and I presume Bruce Wayne's, other identity. Fugue then demonstrates a power of altering Batgirl's memories, and suddenly she's convinced that Black Canary killed her mother. Black Canary convinces her to snap out of it and uses her canary cry, which cracks Fugue's mask, and Batgirl punches and shatters it, revealing the figure of the Fugue to be... Cue for dramatic music and pause. Bum, bum, bum. Greg. <gasps> Batgirl can't believe it. She shrieks. Batgirl hits Greg, who manages to fall into an elevator tube to escape, and Batgirl collapses to the floor, seemingly in a coma, but with her eyes open and her mouth agape, with Black Canary unable to revive her. To be continued next month in a chapter entitled State of Mind. Mm. Okay, before I get into the comments and thoughts... I think the very, very, very most important thing to say here is a quote from Stella in the last podcast who had this prediction, and I quote, So, without having read issue 48, I'll tell you right now my prediction on who the bad guy is because this is what I'm feeling reading through this issue. I'm thinking that Greg is the bad guy, end quote. <laughs> I did. Stella, yeah. Stella, I am glad I am the one to congratulate you. Okay. How did you feel when you read this and saw that you were right? I thought, huzzah, I'm <laughs> right about it. It just seemed a little hinky, if I'm to borrow a Scooby-Doo term, that <laughs> this guy was rifling through her drawers, and Jim Gordon didn't seem to remember him, and yeah, he's Batman, but it seems a little weird that her own father wouldn't remember someone that you're close to. It just seemed very convenient in the roommating that I thought, this guy is probably it. He's a bad guy. Excellent. So I feel vindicated. If I Excellent. made any terrible guesses before, I think this clears it up. <laughs> well, before we dig any deeper, do you have any predictions for the next issue? Now, here's the thing. If Greg knows not just Barbara's secret identity as well as presumably Batman's, Batman's do, yeah. do, do you think that uh, Greg is going to get killed off at the end of the story arc? Mm. Or potentially like his power worked against him, so he turns in sort of into a, like a vegetative state maybe. Okay. So he loses all that. I feel like he won't die, but I think something will happen that his power is used against him. Gotcha. You know, going back to how this initially started, I, I don't know if I know totally your feelings. What do you think of this Barbara Luke romance going on right now, presently? Yeah, I um, and I think it started when uh, Don was on randomly, and I just wasn't sure about it. And I didn't like it as much just because it seemed like she was going from guy to guy, and I don't really like. <laughs> I kind of want her to be, I guess, a serial monogamist. And also, instead of having all these boys around, I almost want, you know, Barbara Gordon to figure out who Barbara Gordon is and then go from there. But because it stayed pretty consistent, and especially last issue where he was really a shoulder for her in a way that there are only a few characters in her life that can be that way and be comforting and also give her confidence, I'm starting, I'm starting to warm to it, though I think it's very strange to have a picnic on a roof in your costume. <laughs> oh, what did you make of uh, Batgirl's appearance? She had a lot to do in this issue. Was would, did you like to see her interaction? Batgirl or uh, uh, Black Canary? Black Canary. Yeah, I think it's great to see these two team up. 
they have such a history together. And I like it especially now because at the beginning of the Burnside run, they were at odds. And really, I guess it started from the end of uh, the Christy Marks Birds of Prey run that there are just so many problems. So it's great now to see them working together and you get a real Birds of Prey feel. And as you were recapping and I was following along with you, that very last page with Dinah holding uh, Barbara almost reminds me of, and I am not going to know what the issue number is, but in Birds of Prey, I guess it'd be volume two with Chuck Dixon after the Hunt for Oracle storyline. She's holding Barbara at one point and up to that point, Oracle and Dinah, they didn't know who each other were. And then when she's holding Barbara, she says, you know, just call me Barbara. So it was like the first time she revealed. Yes. But it just reminds me of her when she's holding her like that. It really harkens back to that, which I, I don't know if that's on purpose or not, but I just like got hit. But it's just great. I, it's a classic team up. Uh, this These two girls um, have one of my favorite relationships, uh, just a very sisterly relationship. And I think that it's been very damaged. So I feel like maybe we're getting back to the roots of that and maybe we're going to see i'm impressed by your recall that was really good yeah. here's a here's a side question for you and i don't know if this is just me but black canary's appearance is it just me or does she have more holes in her fishnet <laughs> stockings now is it just me and if so does what do you make of that does that bother you does that look okay to you uh, do you think that just goes with her musician appearance now yeah i don't know and i think you know ryan daly's show when he was covering uh, black canary i think he used to maybe count rip stockings or he used to comment on it uh and here we go maybe she doesn't change them at all this is this is just it you know it's a little messy but if it's the rocker appearance which i feel like it is just because of her uh bicycle gloves those probably aren't what they're called but yeah i i think in the trench coat obviously this isn't really the best fighting gear that she could have so it's a little messy but i think it's more on the rocker side than the vigilante side or the hero side there you go so, have any other points before we give it a grade? Yeah, I the villains, the co-op team, I thought that they were fun, uh, and it continues. What I really like about this team, which I said in the previous issue, is just that they have a long-term villain, and then interspersed between that, they have these smaller villains. And I actually never really knew about this preview. I don't know if what I missed, maybe it's because I don't look at comic things anymore because I don't want to be spoiled. But I was glad that it, you're right, it actually is still out because when I saw that editor's note, I stopped reading this and then I went and got that and read I did it. the very same thing, yeah. Yeah, so that's, that's great. But I was a little bummed just because why use these? Uh, there are other villains I think that we could have counter encountered already inside the book that would have been used and readers would have easily recognized that Batgirl had fought them before. So it's, um, which I think would have worked really well. So if you had used like the, the anime characters again, everyone, you know, who had been reading from issue 35 would have recognized this. And then we all would have been on the same page. And then we would have seen how really messed up Barbara is because she doesn't remember it, but readers as well as people inside the book remember it. So I think there was a missed opportunity there, though I guess they wanted to connect to the preview. I like Batgirl and Batwing teaming up more so than just having a picnic on on the roof. It was good to see him in action, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And I like that Frankie was checking out Bat's brain and, and covering all bases because this was one of the problems that I thought it could be. So I'm glad that, you know, the writers are touching on this and exploring all avenues. Greg, what do you think about the program he's creating? Because it really seemed from the way he was describing it that it could be considered a criminal profiling, sort of where you get all the data from different crime scenes and, and create a portrait of who the killer could be or his MO. 
I, I agree. I, I thought it makes me wonder what these mechanizations are, though, that he has behind the scenes. And it did sound something a bit kind of, what kind of uh, technology is this? And is this going to go in the right or wrong hands? And what's he going to do with this? Uh, yeah. That said, I, I don't want to foreshadow a little bit here, but do you, do you know what's going to happen? Have you looked anywhere or heard anything about issue 49 as yet? I haven't. Well, except someone sent me a, a link to a news story that apparently the killing joke is no longer in continuity. And then they showed an image, like a splash page of stuff that was going on in 49. But I didn't look too closely because I didn't want to spoil anything. Gotcha. Okay. So I guess you can't reveal more than that. No. Okay, thank I'm you. Not gonna say, I'm not going to say nothing. Okay, that's yeah. okay. If you notice in one of the earlier pages when they're out on the street, I think it's Dinah and Babs, uh, they walk past a theater and it's playing Babs, 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 the musical. Yes. And I wondered what Babs, 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 the musical was about. I know. What do you think that's going to be about? I, 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 I caught that and I thought that was a nice touch. And I don't know if that was just a shout out for uh, Babs or Babs Tar or who we got going on. I there. have no idea. I I don't know. <laughs> now the musical, who knows what it's about? I don't know. We can only guess, I guess. The fugue, I'm glad you did that. Actually, we must be of the same mind because I had also defined what a fugue state was. Though whenever I hear this word, I think of Felicity, the TV show. Do you remember that TV show? Carrie Russell. Yeah, yeah because Jennifer Garner's character was uh, working on creating a fugue. I remember that was like a big plot point for whatever reason. So I always think about that. So if I don't get some practicing in tonight, I'm dead. No, no one will care if I leave, right? No, I don't think so. Um, I'll walk out. Yeah? Yeah. So we got this nightmare exercise. I'm supposed to be writing a fugue. I'm not sure how to respond to that. I don't know exactly what a fugue it's is. It's where two themes are repeated. You keep bringing in contrapuntal voices. Well, uh, you know, anything with contrapuntal is hard. I was wondering if you could listen to what I've got so far. Maybe help me out. <clears throat> like you used to. Like I used to. I do wonder when she realizes that the fugue, that he's real, that her nightmare is real. She gets really freaked out about it. And I was shocked that she's more freaked out than angry and ready to go into action. Like she almost shuts down and seems very vulnerable. Do you think that this seems like the right direction or do you think that's in character or out of character? That's a great observation. I thought there was the uh, moment where we, we freeze on a, bit where she's walking away with uh, Dinah uh-huh. and there's this moment of grim realization and I thought it really felt real in that um, I think she sensed something a bit of foreshadowing that something really ominous and bad was about to happen this was almost to the next level and it was like um, her previous thoughts and nightmares just she was almost like having a daymare I mean she was mm-hmm. it, it ramped it up I think it's fair that she just had a momentary momentary lapse. I think it was a very pure human reaction to what she felt. At least that's the way in the storytelling as it was written and depicted. That's how it, I interpreted it. Yeah. Yeah, it just seems like for several panels there, she's she's hugging herself and, and almost like, hear no evil, see no evil. And then, you know, Dinah goes there to sort of comfort her and snap her out of it. And she's still 
Right, and I just don't. I try to put myself into her shoes. If, yeah. if I had had this nightmare and there was a recurring character that mm-hmm. it was in my nightmare, and then suddenly I, ha- I had a feeling that I was going to counter it, how would I feel? How would I react? Yeah. I don't know. So it's very true. I guess it's like uh, Freddy Krueger or something. Probably. Yeah. I, I think this is an interesting villain. I think he's pretty dangerous because he knows personal details and identities. So he's not only dangerous with his powers, but also with the knowledge that he gains from his powers. But I do wonder how his powers work and what are his overall goals. So these are questions that I'm hoping are answered before he's taken down. But really, how can the big question also besides that is how can Batgirl recover from that? I mean, the dead look in her eyes is, is like the final scene. Um, of one flew over the cuckoo's nest or something, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> before yes. the Indian gets him or puts, I shouldn't say gets him, but puts him out of his misery. So yeah, I'm curious where this is going to go. So yeah. What is your grade on Batgirl 48? Well, I really liked the artwork. I liked Lee mm-hmm. Lawford's colors a lot here. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I worry about, well, I'll give my store first. I'm giving this a solid 8 out of 10 bats. Okay. Uh, now, over on the TBU website, Donovan Morgan Gray gave this 3.5 out of 5. Okay. Uh, my score is a little higher. I really enjoyed this a lot. I really thought it was great. We had the big reveal with Greg and Fugue. Mm-hmm. It, one of the things that worries me, though, is when I tend to see these things of a story arc, I really think almost when we get close to the penultimate chapter, mm-hmm. that gets better than when you read the finale. The final chapter, you're kind of let down after this. So I really hope 50 knocks it out of the park, or 49 and 50 hit it out of the park when we get to the final conclusion of this. Mm-hmm. As it is, I, I'll have to rate Backer 48 for what it was, and I'm giving it a solid 8 out of 10. I'm going to agree with you and keep my 8 out of 10 bats as well. So I'm just waiting to see how this turns out, and I want to learn more about the few. So. Now into our last book, which is Gotham Academy. Number 15, Yearbook Part 2, Interstitials, written by Brendan Fletcher and penciled and colored by Adam Archer, and Interstitials, inked by Sandra Hope. So the girls continued trading tales, but now focus more on the faculty when Colton pops in and says they need to put the staff party in the yearbook. So that's the first story we have. It is Staff Party, written and illustrated by Zach Gorman. With David Bowie's Let's Dance in the background, Professors Langstrom and Lilac are at the snack table, and Langstrom is upset everything is made of eggs, most likely because Egghead himself was in charge of the snacks. This is this has got to be a treat for you, Chris. Uh, <laughs> McPherson forces Langstrom to dance, shipper for sure. And while Lilac says he does not envy him, Hammer believes he should and tells him to try to have fun. Lilac goes back to reading books alone and Colton and Maps are hiding in the walls. And Maps is disappointed that the faculty party was boring. But Colton said she's the only one that's surprised about this. Next story is Serpents and Secrets, written and illustrated by Eduardo Medeiros and Rafael Albuquerque, and colors by Dave McKegg. Maps and Oliver playing serpents and spells when a crow slash raven appears and asks for their help in a quest. The girls are suddenly transported into a real-life RPG role-playing game, and creepy crawlies and a ghoul are all there. It turns out the bird used them in order to grab a book. Olive snaps them out of the world, and it turns out that Scarecrow is the one to attack the girls. Hammer suddenly knocks Scarecrow out and then snatches the book from the girls, and they scurry off because he's an intimidating guy. And it turns out that Hammer's wife's locket is inside the book, and he turns to interrogate uh, Scarecrow because apparently it looks like the two have a past. The friends finally decide to use the greatest nose in Gotham to lead them to a wealth of teacher stories. And this leads us to the final 
story, which is Hammond Around, written and illustrated by Mingwei Helen Chen. So as soon as McPherson leaves for work in the morning, her dog Ham runs out and around campus towards the headless statue. There's an opening underneath a building behind it, and inside the opening, a treasure trove of items, which one can presumably say that Ham has been collecting. He takes a nap when Tristan shows up, if you remember, he's the uh, the man bat around campus, and gives Ham a wooden hammerhead toy so he doesn't have to chase the real one. Next up, we have Rainy Sundays and Batman. Wow, yeah, what a treasure trove of Easter eggs, literally, yeah. starting with Egghead himself. Yeah, so between staff parties, serpents and secrets, and hemming around, which yeah. story, and well, can you call these stories or little incidents, which of these did you like the best? I think I, you know, I love Ham, and I thought that was so cute that he's got this, like, treasure trove, though there's some dangerous stuff in there, which I will go into, but I think that the staff party was my favorite, just to see what the teachers do and that they are almost kids in their own way as well um how they act up and relate to each other um and i just thought that that was fun how annoyed lilac gets <laughs> and he's a bit of a wallflower too but i can totally see how you know there's some people there are students i know that would rather be off and reading a book than necessarily uh, socializing and interacting with others so it's totally true to form I was kind of fond of Serpents and Secrets. Okay. Uh, I, I like that uh, how the art changed from when we're in this the uh, non role playing game land, and then right. suddenly we're immersed in this role playing game land, and the art just totally get, gets this more drastic turn. Mm -hmm. Now, Eduardo Medardis's art, who did like the art sequence in the non role playing game land, I don't know if you're familiar with an artist named Peter Bag. Uh, he did a comic called Hate back in the 90s, which kind of chronicled the life of a fictional character named Buddy Bradley. But just the way he, the facial expressions really reminded me of that artistic style. And I think this, the, of all the incidences in the book, I think this might have been the longest and sort of had the most uh, weight. That said, uh, it was very closely followed up by the bookworm and egghead appearance in Staff Party. I just, I just, my eyes just bulged out of my head when I saw that. that was yeah. I, yeah, I like the creativity of the Scarecrow story, um, and you know, especially the art that, like you mentioned. But I do wonder if Scarecrow had to change his formula a little bit uh, because it, it didn't seem like the same effects that we're used to with Scarecrow. Are you liking the yearbook sequence uh, sequence all along? I mean, I know in the last podcast you commented we sort of deviated. We had a lot of yeah. unanswered questions with uh, uh, Kyle's abduction not being resolved really yep. fully and, and stuff like that. Uh, is is this or are we sort of taking like a summer break already? Or seems or, like or, it. Yeah. Yeah. Or this could have been something that could have been used as an annual and, and, you know, sort of combine the two, yearbook one and two, and have an oversized. So something that doesn't necessarily detract from the story, but uh, does add more to the characters. But, That's a totally great call. Yeah, yeah. So the intriguing mystery with the locket of Hammer's wife. Who knows if we'll see that again? And then Ham. So let's talk about Ham here, potentially collecting his for his stash under the building for whatever reason but he's got some dangerous stuff down there he's got daggett's cream that created clayface he's got some playing cards and joker's teeth potentially and ace's dog bowl yes so i don't know how he's getting this stuff i'm a little concerned about the clayface <laughs> stuff could be dangerous and then the joker stuff is also a little scary uh but i guess maybe he's a hoarder he is a hoarder. <laughs> and how? who do you think will uh, stumble upon this little stash that we have going on here, if anyone? I don't know if anyone will. Who, who, well, I guess if anyone, it'd be Maps. Of course. Probably. That's exactly what I was <laughs> Honestly, my thought was. Yes. Uh, but I, I think it's pretty safe from other people. 
Yeah. Ham, where are you going, boy? What you got in that hole? <gasps> oh, yeah. So I'm just waiting for that Absolutely. reveal if it happens. I, I have to think I'm with you. I'm with. It's got to be Maps who finds it, if anyone. I love one of the conversations he overhears when he's running, or we do anyways, is people judging the pizza club and saying how weird it is. I didn't even see them eat pizza. <laughs> it's pretty interesting. Uh, but one of the transitions I didn't really think worked as well was after the first story because Pomeline is talking about the faculty or somebody seeing into their dreams. It's very strange. And then there's hostility between Olive and Colton when he calls her Livy, which is super awkward. But I, I, I just wasn't sure where all that stuff was coming from. Yeah, I didn't know what to make of that if I, re- if, if I should have taken it at face value or read into it a little bit more. I, 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 that there was a little momentarily where it seemed kind of off or I got some kind of vibe there Uh, but you felt it too eh? yep I did well that's all I have for this one you know before we get into our scores now I I heard that uh, they recently announced that there's going to be a Lumberjanes Gotham Academy crossover which is going to be a six issue miniseries uh, and I think that's going to come out in June are you familiar with Lumberjanes and what do you think of this news I've heard of it and it seemed like an interesting comic but I've not read any of it well, Lumberjanes won two Eisner Awards last year for being the best new series and the best publication for teens. Uh, this is a boombox imprint from the Boom Studio Publishers. Lumberjanes is set at an all-girls summer camp called Camp for Hardcore Lady Types. And they're, <laughs> they're surrounded in these woods, and they always stumble upon these uh, supernatural mysteries. They have five main characters, and their names are April, Joe, Mal, Molly, and Ripley. And each one of these girls has a unique trait or personality. Uh, the series was created by uh, Shannon Waters, Grace Ellis, and Noel Stevenson. I think all the artwork that's been done on the series has been done solely by women, and this has only been out for a couple of years. So I, I'm looking forward to seeing how they pull this off. Have you? So you've read it? Yeah. Do you recommend it then? Lumberjanes, it's not for everybody. Uh, I'm certainly not going to rec- recommend it to, uh, well, you know, it is, it's an all ages friendly book. So take that for what you will. I, they tell good stories. Uh, some issues are hit and miss and move a little slow, but it's always great characterization. And But I always need something a little light in my reading and this is always there and it's always been a good uh, good read for the most part. So yes, I would recommend it. If you're, if you're a hardcore super fan or, or, or into superheroes, this is not for you. If you like your books uh, adult rated or if you're a regular reader of the Vertigo line, maybe you'll like this, maybe not. This this is a uh, kid-friendly book. Okay. Sounds good. Maybe I'll check it out. I've seen it and it looks really interesting. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's been collected in a trade or not. I, I have it to think seems so, like it. Yeah, yeah, I see volume one and volume two. That may just be it. Okay. Four issues in each, so I mean, maybe it'd be. It's probably on Comicsology, so that could always be a good thing too. So no, I didn't know about that. So now I'll have to check out Lumberjanes and then see how that crossover goes. Good deal. Now for me, this was almost like a plate of nice appetizers. We get okay. one two bites, uh, uh-huh. but there's there's no real main course here. But we get some really great appetizers, little nuggets of the stories. The artwork was phenomenal, and I'm being exposed to all these different artists that I'm not familiar with. We get three, I don't know if I call them stories, maybe incidents, uh, but I liked it so much based on the artwork alone and some of the behind the things scenes here. I'm missing the main meat of the story, but I'm going to go 
seven out of ten diplomas just okay. kind of strong strongly more so on the art and plus like you said i did like the batman 66 references with bookworm and naked in the staff party story. absolutely uh just that one strange transition uh didn't make sense for me but overall i liked it i think about the same amount as my previous as a previous one so i will give it eight out of ten diplomas you go. The final book, of course, I don't review it, but it was Black Canary number eight, and it starts off in Medius Race. It's very in the middle of the action uh, from the previous ending uh, in seven, so it was a little bizarre. But basically, Dinah and her newly found aunt, who turns out to be the White Canary that's been chasing her, are now on this quest to find Dinah's mother. But then her aunt or aunt sort of betrays her in the end. But Vixen's in it, which was pretty cool. So uh, it's in, I don't know. It's just gone to very different. <laughs> it's gone in a direction I never really expected. So Dinah is one place and her band is another trying to find Dinah. So it's all very interesting. So I'm, I'm going to give this a six out of ten rock stars. Did you read Black Canary number eight? I'm an issue behind. Okay. So, so I have not read eight. I'm up to seven. Okay. That is okay. Yeah. But it's, it's I, I'm little... just wondering. I wonder how this is going to end once we have yeah. uh, prior to Rebirth. I wonder what if what what closure we're going to have with some of these characters, and if they'll pop up uh, post Rebirth. We'll have to see. How do you uh, feel about this series overall? I was I was all over it when it started. I loved the covers. I loved mm-hmm. the little asides with the rock stuff and the the tour dates and all this and the posters and everything. I haven't enjoyed it as much lately and i can't put my finger on why but uh overall i like it and i love the black canary character so i am glad she's appearing now we'll see what happens come this summer but uh uh but i am liking the series how about you it's gotten a little weird i liked it in the beginning just because it was so different but uh, i think with six and seven it just made a very strange turn and maybe now with the weird alien stuff done it will Maybe it'll go back to an adventure day. I just, I, I can't reconcile the fact that this is a rock band, but I guess the rock band is no more. <laughs> so it really is back to a hero book. But yeah, yeah I, I don't. I've liked the artwork. Yeah. I can't really imagine. Uh, I feel like Brennan Fletcher's being stretched pretty thin. Uh, and I sort of wonder uh, if he can continue this, or maybe that's the reason why Black Canary is in Birds of Prey, or will be, that maybe this will be canceled. And then she'll move over there, but I'm not sure. That's a great point. Okay, so I guess now we're doing your special announcement. Yes, Stella. So, Batman 66 fans, I am reluctantly postponing reviewing Batman 66 Meets the Man from Uncle number four this month, and it will be included in Stella's next podcast. I'm doing this because the title's release schedule is a little wonky. Mm-hmm. The print version of the next fifth issue won't be released until April 27th. And I presume Sella is going to record her next April podcast earlier than that. So I'm going to review number four for that episode. So that means number five's review will be recorded in May and number six in June. I thank the Batman 66 fans for their patience and understanding. But, you know, I do feel bad that there is no Batman 66 in this episode and that there's no more Babs in the tube. That ended in the last podcast. So I want to announce a future review segment that will include a yet-to-be-reviewed determined book. But I will also examine the IDW books reprinting the Silver Age Batman comic strip, which debuted in 1966, and would later include its own first appearance of Batgirl. Now, to tease this properly and to take advantage of Stella's awesome vocal talents, (laughs) I'd like to do some brief audio transcript uh, (laughs) dramatization snippets from this book. Now, stories in the first volume include uh, Batman and Robin finding the hideout of the Catwoman, 
and this is a very grim moment, and Batman comes upon the hideout, and he says, Only one door. Then it must lead to the Catwoman. Here goes. One step through that door, and whoosh! The two-man guillotine will make the dynamic duo into a loathsome foursome, says Catwoman. The volume contains appearances of new villains, such as Little Napoleon and Jolly Roger. But familiar villains, the Penguin, the Joker, and Poison Ivy with her three Ivy League dropouts. Naturally, it isn't long before they are cornered by Batman and Robin. Give up! Or suffer the consequences, ladies. Those aren't ladies, Batman. They're crooks! I should think you'd know by this time. Poison Ivy never surrenders. Try this on for size, Batman. It's a gas. How does Batman escape? Now, of course, for the purpose of this podcast is to include Batgirl. When she initially appears, it's speculated that she could be a villainess or the sister of Batman himself. Our heroes even go so far as to disguise themselves as bank robbers to flush her out, and Robin soon suspects that Barbara Gordon is Batgirl. But upon searching Barbara's car, Robin explains, Nothing in the car, Batman. I trust you'll pardon us, Miss Gordon, but my young friend had the ridiculous notion that you might be Batgirl. Goodness, what a perfectly terrifying idea. Barbara drives away but thinks to herself, So, they did suspect my true identity. Question is, do they still think I'm Batgirl? Shortly thereafter, Batman and Robin are presumed dead in a plane crash. In reality, our heroes survive, but Batman has amnesia. During this time, Barbara's Boy Scout nephew tells her that he recently saw the Batmobile drive into a hill and thinks they must have lived there. Batgirl investigates and does indeed find the cave, but triggers an alarm causing her to leave. The Breach panics Robin, who activates a failsafe, which causes an explosion which seals off the cave. Batgirl later returns to the location and traces the source of the explosion, which leads her to the estate of millionaire Bruce Wayne. <laughs> is it possible? Can he be Batman? Sneaking into Wayne Manor, she is shocked to see Batman and Robin alive, but confirms her hunch, which leads Batman to say, If it's all that serious, I guess there's only one thing we can do. I suppose we have to kill her. Yeah, he says that. <laughs> and Batman continues, if it's so important that our secret identities be preserved, I suppose we should kill this young woman. Robin retorts, but we never kill anybody. Batman continues, I didn't suppose we did, young fellow, but I thought her snooping around had earned her a little scare. Beckerl doesn't take this very lightly. Very funny. And now let me tell you a thing or two, Mr. Batman. When you were reported dead in the Batcopter crash, I thought only of carrying on your crusade against crime. But of course it never occurred to either of you that an anxious world might be worried about you. No, you were only thinking about yourselves. Ha! If that isn't just like a couple of men. I guess we did something wrong. Now, get on that bat phone and tell Commissioner Gordon you're still alive. Yes, ma'am. Batgirl then aids in the continuing adventure and at some point even dresses as Batman to impersonate <laughs> him while he still has amnesia. Now, after some twists and turns and after the sequence ends, Robin states the inevitable, knowing our true identities is a dangerous secret, Batgirl. But I can't very well forget it. Batman says, perhaps you can. Have you considered self-hypnosis? Frankly, no. But I promise to think about it. She says while driving off. She's a pretty good kid. I'll bet she does it, Batman says. Never bet on what a woman will do, old chum. 
And that's just some of the action in the book. (laughs) So interestingly here, unlike the TV show and the comics at the time, Batgirl knows Batman and Robin's identities, but they don't know hers. Her father doesn't know, and her secret is only known to one person, and that's identity is this balding Hulk Asian name, Jose Guy, who hangs out in an area described as the deserted area of the Gotham Public Library, <laughs> who she practices judo with. Uh, the story contains a lot of what they were, what were they thinking moments, and I think this deserves some attention and examination. So I hope you look forward to that additional segment in the coming months. And Stella, thank you very much for your vocal renditions. Absolutely. You know, that just seems like off the wall and perhaps even more off the wall than the Silver Age. Yes, and I think that book's available by your fine sponsor, so <laughs> it's still available. I'd get yeah. that out. It's at, it's on sale, so check it out. Oh, uh, you know, Stella, there's one other thing. You okay. know, does the term pop quiz sometimes come up in your profession? <laughs> uh, it, it, it Usually it is responded to with groans and shouts at me. I see. So what if the tables were turned? What if... What if you, Stella, you yourself had to take a pop quiz? Um, I'd be a little nervous about it. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> well, maybe somebody out there will thank me. I've Stella had no foreknowledge of this. Is that right, Stella? That is true. Okay. I have I've prepared for you just a little bit of turnabout here mm-hmm. as i've done it during this uh podcast uh-huh. i've got a bop uh, i've got a bad girl pop quiz for you and this okay. is 10 questions mm-hmm. some of these are multiple choice and some are true and false do you <laughs> okay. do you dare take this quiz yeah i'll take this quiz Okay, so just, just out of curiosity, when was, the, when was the last time you administered a pop quiz? Probably, I'm thinking about this. The funny thing about my pop quiz is I will tell them, I'll say like sometime this week you'll probably have a pop quiz. So they know about it, but probably in February sometime I give okay. a pop quiz. And when was the last time you took one? Last time I took one, probably when I was in college. <laughs> <laughs> so it's been it's been a uh, I guess five five or six years. Okay, fair to say you are about due. Okay, so I've got some bad girl trivia for you. Okay, yeah. And here we go. There are uh-huh. ten questions. Let's okay. let's go. Uh, the first question is: Are you ready? Yes. Okay. The first bad girl, Betty Kane, mm-hmm. first appeared in Batman number one thirty nine in nineteen sixty one. She assisted Batwoman, Batman, and Robin against what villain? Is it A. The Joker? B, King Cobra, or C, Killer Moth? It is A, the Joker. It is B. It was King what? Cobra. <laughs> it was. I know you saw this issue. I oh, thought I it was the Joker and the Clayface. Oh. oh, no. that was in, I think that happened in, what, 157? Oh. Might have been 157. Yeah, I think that was oh. around there. They had the, the great uh, Joker-Clayface feud might have been right around there. So yeah. I let Tom down. Oh no no no! You're going to redeem yourself because you got a lot. You, we got a lot of ground to cover. You got okay. a lot of ground to cover. Are you ready for the second question? I am. At Bar- least I wasn't about Barbara Gordon. <laughs> it is about Barbara Gordon. I'm sorry. That that is the last and only Betty Kane question okay. we have. 
Okay, so Barbara Gordon first appeared in Detective Comics number 359, cover dated January 1967. What was her very first thought when she put on her Batgirl costume? This is multiple choice. What was her very first thought when she put on her Batgirl costume? Is it A, though the world may mock Barbara Gordon, timid librarian, it will soon marvel at the awesome might of Batgirl? Is it B, now I'll make them admit I can take Wonder Woman's place? Or is it C, well, this Batgirl costume really does things for me. I can hardly wait for the midnight unmasking hour and the shock I'll give Dad. C. It is C. Awesome. Way to go. Yes, the thought of A was uh, Peter Parker's, a little spin on Peter Parker's thought okay. from Basic Fantasy, yep. and B was um, Black Canary thought that on the cover when she joined the Justice League, which I think was Justice League 75, 76, right around gotcha. there. Yeah, the intention so. was never to be a hero in the beginning, so I knew. I was waiting for one that was not <laughs> heroically yeah. based. This is the one that I feared. This next question, number three, is the one I feared the most problems with. Okay. So, here we go. <laughs> right. Here we go. Uh-huh. Which which of these failed love interests of mm. Barbara Gordon and Dick Grayson chronologically appeared first? So between Lori Elton and Jason Bard, mm. which of those chronologically appeared first? Oh, man. I am going to say Jason Bard. It was Jason Woo! Bard. Okay. Jason the Bard appeared in Detective first appeared in Detective Comics number three hundred ninety two, October of sixty nine. Lori Elton, I didn't know it was that far back. She didn't appear until nineteen seventy five in Detective oh, Comics number four fifty. Okay. So it was some uh, like uh, fifty eight issues later after yeah. Jason that Lori Elton first appeared. Uh, what did you think of Lori, and what did you think of Jason back in the day? I didn't know too much about Lori. Uh, I only had a couple interactions with her. And only when Dick was involved because of, like, Batman family and things like that. So I didn't get to know her too much. But I really like Jason. And uh, I miss him when they brought him back in Eternal. I was super disappointed in his characterization. But I just thought he was such a great pairing with her having that detective aspect. And, he, you know, he was a handsome guy. So I, I do miss him. You know, even though I may be a, a Dick and Bab shipper, I think that Jason Bard was a great match for Barbara Gordon. Excellent. I totally agree with you. I wonder how many people are playing at home right now, too. So I, they probably had to pause initially and they yeah. had to take their pencil out and take the yeah. pictures. So they're <laughs> scoring along at home. Uh, we hope you are up to date now. And we continue on with question number four. Question number four reads as follows. Batman once asked Clark Kent to call on Congresswoman Barbara Gordon for a date. Mm. This happened in Superman number 268, which was cover dated October 1973. What was the title of this story? Mm. Was it A, Wild Weekend in Washington, B, Mild-Mannered Matter in Metropolis, or was it C, Ghastly Gross Gala in Gotham? <laughs> you love those alliterations. Yes. Uh, and the only reason I know this is because I recently rethought about them because I was on a podcast with uh, Michael Bailey. Uh, it's Wild Weekend in Washington. You are correct. It is a Wild Weekend in Washington. Very, very good. Excellent. Okay. How are you feeling? You feeling more confident? You're in a groove now? Well, I, I don't want to uh, get too prideful here. So uh, very good. Try to keep my bubble down. Okay. Okay, folks, are, if you're scoring at home, uh, we are up to question number five. Question number five reads as follows. One of the greatest kisses in comic book history <laughs> happened between Batgirl and Robin way back in Batman Family number one in 1975. Mm -hmm. 
what two villains did they defeat in that story? Was it A, the Cavalier and Killer Moth? Was it B, the ghost of Benedict Arnold and the Devil? Or C, was it the Joker's daughter and Madame Zodiac? Cavalier and Killer Moth. Cavalier and Killer Moth later appeared, but no! it was actually it was the ghost of Benedict Arnold and the oh, Devil. I didn't remember that. That's a bummer. Oh, yeah. They had that uh, kiss, and then uh, I think Mike Grell drew, drew the issue, and it was uh, ni- 1970, around the bicentennial, that was a really themed issue. And I remember they, they had some kind of weird uh, trap where they were sprung on some kind of like a noose-like device, and they were held up in there. But yeah, it was like Benedict Arnold and the devil of all things. Oh. One of the weird things about that story, too, is like I think Bison Becker was reading something to a, a TV screen, and back then... Uh, they used to have these bicentennial minutes on TV, and I think it was ran on the CBS network where they would show like a celebrity read some type of uh, anecdote from history, and they had Barbara Gordon read one. So it was very one of these a uh, lot of lot of uh, history and patriotism right around that time. So I think that's why they used those characters in particular. Very good. Okay, so we're moving on. Let's see now. Question six is this: In pre-crisis continuity, Barbara Gordon had a brother named who? Was it A, Tony, B, Stephen, C, Michael? Tony. It was Tony. Very good. You remember Tony? I do. Tony, I think he had that, didn't he have like some kind of weird beard and glasses too? (laughs) Yes, and he was a spy. He was a spy. That's right. He was (laughs) a spy. And there was some shenanigans going around. Was it China? I think yep. it was like an old detective. With the Sino Superman. With the Sino Superman. That's awesome. Yeah. Yes, that's See, exactly I remember it. that, but not the devil and Benedict <laughs> Arnold. Oh, don't be so hard on yourself. This is a pop quiz. You're, you're, I'm sure you're going to do well in this. Here we go. Next up is question number seven. Here we go. First appearing in Detective Comics number 647, which pair are credited with creating the Stephanie Brown character? Was it A, Marv Wolfman and George Perez? B, Fabian Nessiez and Rob Liefeld, or was it C, Chuck Dixon and Tom Lyle? Chuck Dixon and Tom Lyle. You are exactly right. Oh, yes. Chuck Dixon and Tom Lyle. Uh, Marv Wolfman and George Perez were doing uh, Teen Titans. That's what they were known for. Uh, Fabian and Rob, uh, best known for creating the character Deadpool. So there you go. Very good. I would not have known that myself, so I did not know who created Stephanie Brown. But you, there you go. You got it. It was Chuck Dixon and Tom Lyle. We're in the home stretch. We're up to question number eight. Which of these women never voiced an animated version of Batgirl? Which of these women never voiced an animated version of Batgirl? Was it A, Jane Webb, B, Shannon Doherty, or C, Melissa Gilbert? Which one of them never voiced Batgirl? The one that apparently is not a nice person to work with, Shannon Doherty. <laughs> you are correct. It is Shannon Doherty. She never voiced Batgirl. Jane Webb did the 60s and Melissa yep. Gilbert was very good. Awesome. Yes. Two questions to go. Okay. How are you feeling? Okay, I'm at 80% right now. So. Yeah, so oh, here we go. Yeah. yeah, potentially 80. Here we go. Released in 2000... Oh, I know you're going to love this question. <sighs> Released in 2003, the limited series Batgirl Year One. You think of it finally, don't you, Stella? I do. How many issues did that run for? Did it run for four issues? A, four issues? B, nine issues? Or C, 12 issues? Four, nine, or 12? Nine. It was Nine. <laughs> I was thinking yes. when you were, yeah, I was going to spit out nine, and then you said 12. I'm like, huh, huh. But, yeah, okay. Awesome. I would have gotten that wrong. I felt I had, I thought it was a year series. But, no, you were right. It was only nine issues. And, boy, those were, that was a great series, Absolutely. too. Absolutely. That was awesome. Last question. Hey. Okay. 
It's a true and false. It's okay. a true or false. Here we go. How do you feel? It's a 50-50. <laughs> you ready? Scary. Yeah, with the Lori Elton and Jason Barbas 50-50 <laughs> Well, you got that one, though. That was the hardest one I thought of sure. the whole thing. So here we go. Last question, true or false. In the 1970s, Batgirl appeared in two separate comic book ads for Hostess, Twinkies, and Fruit Pies. True or false? In the 70s, Batgirl appeared in two separate comic book ads for Hostess, Twinkies, and Fruit Pies. True. True, yes. In the in the Twinkies ad, she took on someone called Jet Set Jesse, who is Jewel Thief Extraordinaire. And in the Fruit Pie ad, she took on a group called the Magpies. So, well done. You get a B. Oh, my goodness, Stella. <laughs> I'm glad. B and I have for... to give uh, some props to Shag for that last one because I think at some point we're going to record these ads. And he sent me the images, and I remember there being two different ones. So he, he helped me with that last oh, one. Oh, see? There you go. There you go. He is good for something. Yes, a B. Thank goodness. I was so concerned. My reputation was on the line. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry I put you on the spot, but I thought we'd have a little fun. You know, I felt so bad we didn't have any Babs in the Tube or the 66th Review, and we just needed to lighten it up a little bit and have a little more fun, and hopefully some of the fans out there got a kick out of the trivia. So Absolutely. There you go. Very cool. Well, I guess that's it for our show. Stella, I can't thank you enough. You know, I feel very, very blessed, and I'm not saying just that because – this is like my favorite podcast. This is oh. the one that resonated with me. And to have co-hosted once, it was like winning the lottery. And then when you do it twice, it's yeah. it's. It, I just can't think of how fortunate I am. I can't think of a better way to spend time on an evening just to talk about old comics and new comics and just talk about pop culture in general. This was an excellent visit. Fans, I hope you, I hope when you listen to me doing this, some of the joy that I had doing this came through because – I can't thank Stella enough for having me on. I, I just had a blast. I really loved every second of this show that we did. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I mean, you put in so much time and work on those 66, and it's been a while since you've been on, so I felt like you needed more than just those 10 minutes that you bring that you uh, should have been on. So, And it was so much fun, and you always, you, uh, always come packed with information like you know what's on the shelves and everything you put me to shame <laughs> i do like the least preparation ever oh no but uh no no i i very much appreciate your time and uh just the the fun and you can tell how much you love this stuff which that's what i look for someone who loves and enjoys uh the comics that we're reviewing listeners don't forget to leave stella an awesome review on itunes oh, please feel free to comment on this episode if they need to, if anyone would like to reach out to reach me, you can probably just leave a message on the uh, podcast. Uh, I, I will include uh, all the force information to Stella. But usually, if somebody leaves me a message, Stella forwards it to me. So Absolutely. I think a couple of people have re- reached out to me in the mm-hmm. past to, to praise me. So uh, continue doing that. Uh, like her on Facebook. Uh, and is there anything more? <laughs> Am I forgetting <laughs> something? You totally okay. just like. Uh... I mean, that was basically, yeah, Facebook, uh, Twitter, at Batgirl Oracle, and, of course, um, the Batman Universe and Twitter as well. And uh, thanks again to Mile High Comics for sponsoring Batgirl Oracle. Do you want to sign us off, Chris? Fly on, bad lovers. There you go. Just plain Barbara Gordon masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Batgirl!
love a happy ending, don't you?